Right. If you will, to take your hands and press your fingertips into the pads of your hands. Thumbs are up, the knuckles are off to the sides. Tuck the chin a bit, close your eyes, and begin a rapid in-out breath through the nose. This is called breath of fire. If you've never done it, just start a little slowly and then build up the pace. Keep stretching the arms up, thumb is up. Continuous, rapid breath. Just a little longer. As you continue for the last bit, relax your face, but keep doing it. That's it. Keep breathing, keep breathing. Now inhale deeply. And a little more, and a little more. Stretch the arms up. And very slowly, bring the arms straight above the head, bring the thumbs together. When the thumbs meet, bring the palms together, and then exhale down the center line of the body. Relax the breath. And let your awareness completely receive the sensations that are happening naturally. You can relax your arms down, but stay present. When I was first introduced to Buddhism, um, I was in a class a comparative religion class and I was in it was either 10th or 11th grade in high school and we studied it for at least two weeks and um, during that time I learned a lot about that everybody suffers and that to be free from suffering we need to get rid of desire so I completed that section of our study absolutely sure that I had found one religion that definitely wasn't for me, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, why this morbid emphasis on unpleasantness? And even worse, why get rid of desire? I mean, I love desire, and desire's fun. So this path seemed about as dreary as it could get. And it wasn't only my teenage brain, which, you know, teenage brains are chemically designed to revel in impulsiveness. It wasn't just that. This is one of the ways that many adults also interpret Buddhism as an emphasis on suffering and the solution, get rid of desire. It's really uh, a misunderstanding. It's not completely different than the, what I consider to be the essential or true teachings, but it's a misunderstanding. So what I'd like to do is read to you some different writings from some of the different scriptures and teachers about desire. This is kind of from a Buddhist perspective. And um, just to say that tonight's talk will be about this world of desire, how desire lives through these bodies and how we can awaken our spirit as we relate to desire. So here's some readings. Craving, thirst, greed, and desire, gives rise to suffering. By understanding and relinquishing desire, we become free from suffering. The path to nirvana is the abandoning and destruction of desire and craving. That's quote number one. Quote number two, this is Suzuki Roshi. What is your deepest longing? Follow your heart. It's another angle. Okay, now we've got the Dhammapada, quote number three. There is no sickness like the hunger of the heart. Extinguish this thirst. The next one. Within desire are the seeds of love and freedom. What is considered the poison is the medicine. 
here's another. This is Rumi. We've just left the pure Buddhist way. From the urgent way lovers want each other to the sannyasin search for truth, all moving is from the mover. Every pull draws us to the ocean. Should we vote on which ones we like? (laughs) Now, there's actually truth in all of them, but what is interesting is you can take any one of those and if you take it out of context or misunderstand it, you actually go right into the shadow side. For instance, if our emphasis is on ridding ourselves from the enchantment of desire, what happens? Here we have this experience that every single human has and we're told get rid of it. It turns us against ourselves. It's a shame induction. It actually steals us against life and against our body. If we're not supposed to feel desire, if we're trying to get rid of it, what do we do? We get away from our body because that's where desire lives, right? So this is the shadow side when we're told, you know, that freedom comes from getting rid of desire, we, in a way, turn against life. Now, if we go the other way and the emphasis is, follow your bliss. What is your heart desire? Go for it. Go ahead. Have a great time, you know. What happens? What's the danger of that one? Anyone? What's the danger of following our hearts? Yeah. I'm sorry? Your, your, what's he, your heart's desire keeps changing, right. Doug? Wanting. You fixate. You start, it's not just follow your heart, it's, hmm, my heart wants a Twinkie right now. <laughs> you know, and then you get narrowed and riveted. What else happens? Out of control. You get in the, in the, in the grasp of desire, in the addiction. I'm sorry? Boredom. Interesting, boredom. And what would make it boring? How would it get boring? I'm sorry? So it's insatiable. You just keep cycling around and around. I want this. And you get it and what happens? You want more of it. So you go and get more and more and more. Now, in the West, we have our own leanings on how we relate to desire. They're very particular. In a way, it's glorified. It's, you know, go for it. There's a hedonism, but there's a deeper layer, which most people I know are really gripped by, which is that in some way it's bad to want. That we feel ashamed of really wanting. We're, we're told pretty early on, don't be needy. So the first expressions of our wants is we want attention, recognition, comfort, and we're, we get that message, don't want too much. So we've learned to hide it, really. And it goes right back to Eden, to the Garden of Eden, where the message is that our desire is sinful. Remember? Some of you might remember this, a woman goes to a priest complaining that her two female parrots are continually repeating this phrase, Hi, we're prostitutes. Want to have some fun? And the priest says, I think I can help you. I've got two parrots also, but they're males. And they're very religious. They keep praying. They're continuously praying. Let's have you bring your two parrots over to hang out with my two parrots and be in that moral atmosphere of of virtue. (laughs) So she does that. She brings them over and the females put out their line again. Hi, we're prostitutes. You want to have some fun? And one male says to the other, Hey, Charlie, put down the rosary. Our prayers have been answered. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy to lock into this cultural idea. It's not just Buddhism that desires are the obstacle 
If we're in a culture like in the West we are where we're trying to overcome nature, control nature, we're trying to control our emotions, we're trying to be on top of things, our bodies and desire become the adversary. Eduardo Galeano writes, the church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says the body is a business. The body says I am a fiesta. Isn't that nice? (laughs) So how to relate in a way they can celebrate. I, I love that expression. I'm a fiesta. And you know, we sit here and I did that breathing with you just to feel a little bit of the aliveness. How do we celebrate this aliveness? Love this life? Not in any way try to extinguish this life. And yet not get caught in this mind that we know has a tendency to go from loving life to fixating. I've got to have it and I've got to have it this way. We begin by investigating a little. What is this energy that we call desire? You know how Willa Cather puts it. She says, when desire is great, everything else is small. It's the biggest force in the universe. It's the glue that holds the universe together. Walpula Rahula, who wrote this book, What the Buddha Taught, writes, the arising of desire is the thirst to exist in the most basic way. Every desire is deep down this, just this longing and thirst to be alive, to exist. It moves whole lives, whole worlds. It's the greatest energy in the world. So wanting mind, really, this desire is is like the great attractor, like gravity. It brings atoms together into molecules. They want to be together. It brings sperms to eggs, people into communities. It's the universal force of attraction that is responsible for any form existing. Any body or planet or galaxy for existing. And on an everyday basis, the force of desire moves us through our day. We're usually unconscious of it. We're unconscious of the little ways we adjust our body because we want to feel more comfortable are the little ways that we adjust how we are relating to another person because we want them to like us. Are the ways that we actually plot out our day to have a little bit more pleasure with food or with how we're sleeping. Are the pleasure of getting things done. We're always moving. We're always leaning into things, trying to get something. We're not aware of it though. It's kind of unconscious. Now this is a reading from one of uh, my favorite writers, Lewis Thomas, 1974, and he's writing in a chapter called The Fear of Pheromones. (laughs) He says, the messages are urgent, but they may arrive, for all we know, in a fragrance of ambiguity. Quote, at home, 4 p.m. today, says the female moth, and releases a brief explosion of bombacol, a single molecule of which will tremble the hairs of any male within miles and send him driving up wind in a confusion of ardor. (laughs) But it is doubtful if he has an awareness of being caught in an aerosol of chemical attractant. (laughs) On the contrary, he probably finds suddenly that it has become an excellent day, the weather remarkably bracing, the time appropriate for a bit of exercise of the old wings and a brisk turn upwind. (laughs) En route, traveling the gradient of Bombacol, he notes the presence of other males heading in the same direction, (laughs) all in a good mood, inclined to race for the sheer sport of it. (laughs) Then, when he reaches his destination, it may seem to him the most extraordinary of coincidences, the greatest piece of luck. Bless my soul, what have we here? (laughs) 
there's no way that we're aware of how much these bodies, these chemicals, these electrical currents are responding to this primal force of wanting mind. So being embarrassed about desire in any form that it comes in is like being embarrassed about being alive. Now there is, as we know, a huge amount of suffering that comes along with desire. As I mentioned, it fixates. We're not just desiring, ah, to celebrate life. We have these ideas of what we think is going to make us happy. It's called if only mind. You know, if only I could get rid of this ache or pain, or if only I could lose 10 pounds, or find the right partner, or finish the semester at school, or we have this idea of what it will take for us to be happy, and we fixate on it. We get really narrowed. An example of if only mind is, is around money. Rita Rudner writes, I want to be rich. You know how some people who get filthy rich just don't care about anybody or anything? That's how rich I want to be. <laughs> and we get attached to other people being happy. You know, we, we fixate on other people's lives, not just our own. A, an acquaintance of mine, a physician, told this story about her then four-year-old daughter. On the way to preschool, the doctor, this woman, had left her stethoscope in the car seat and her little girl picked it up and began playing with it. Be still, my heart thought, my friend. My daughter wants to follow in my footsteps. <laughs> then the child spoke into the instrument. Welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order? <laughs> So the flag of a fixated wanting mind is fear. We can see it in wanting things for others. I know that with myself I want my son to be happy and there's hand in hand with that a fear of what can go wrong. We want somebody to appreciate us and we're afraid that they won't. We want to make progress spiritually and we're afraid that we're in some way not really meditating right. It's wanting and fearing go hand in hand. So wanting mind is painful in a bunch of ways. It fixates, it narrows. In a moment of wanting we're not present. Wanting is for the next moment to contain what this moment does not. When we're wanting we're aiming ahead. We're not here. I mean, how present can we be when we want to leave here and go home or we want to do, not do this but get something to eat or we want to finish a project or we want to catch a plane? In the moment, right now, we can't be here. We lean forward a lot. If you look back just on today, just, just to kind of sense what today was like, how many moments did you sit down in the present, really just drop your notions of where you were going and what you wanted to get done, and touch just the breath, or listen just to sound, or really feel your heart in some way resonant with another, we don't stop much. Wanting keeps yanking us so that we're kind of leaning forward on the cushion, so to speak. That's one kind of pain of wanting. Another, as Jinky, uh, I think, was the one that mentioned it, is that it turns into addiction. We have different degrees of addiction, but addiction is anguish. We have to have it. We must have it. It's anguish if we don't have it. We cannot be happy if this is missing. We can't enjoy our life. And it doesn't matter. Usually it's an addiction to substance. It could be an addiction to a person. 
addiction to work. We have to have things a certain way. It's this rigidity that right now is not okay as it is. Another way that it causes suffering is that when our desire fixates, we forget what really matters. We forget what we really long for. You know, we fixate on the money or the person, but we forget what we really long for is this moment to be able to awaken our hearts, to be able to live more fully. It says, I think it was Thoreau says, we spend our life fishing not realizing that it wasn't fish we were after. And as a therapist, I, one of the kind of pains that has been brought in most over the years is this sense of getting ensnared or caught up in pursuing what wasn't really the thing that mattered and spending days and years and decades going after something and realizing that all those moments we weren't really here connecting with what we cared about. Jack Hornfield, uh, at his birthday two years ago, got a card and in the front of the birthday card you saw the Dalai Lama and it was his birthday and he was opening this gift and there was this big ribbon around and all these monks were surrounding him and he opens the box and looks in and exclaims really happily, oh, nothing, just what I always wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Now one way I like to think of it is that the problem's not wanting, it's that we don't want enough. In other words, it's we just want too small a thing. We set our sights too low. Sri Narsargadatta, one of my favorite of the Indian masters, says that your flight from pain and your search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. When you think in your life of where your wanting mind goes, what you'll find is that if it's attached to small things, yourself will feel small. You'll feel ashamed and little. If you're fixated on having to have that next food or that next acknowledgement, you'll feel small. But the bigger the want gets, you know, if you're wanting freedom, presence, peace, to really love fully, then the sense of the self that's wanting keeps opening and opening until there's really no self. There's just loving awareness, wanting, loving awareness. Do you understand? It's all about being fixated or not being fixated. Men are not free when they are doing just what they like, writes D.H. Lawrence. Men are only free when they are doing what the deepest self likes. And there's some getting down to the deepest self. It takes some diving. So that's the suffering of wanting mind. How do we dive down now? How do we take the energy of wanting and move from the fixated level to its source, which is really a place of liberation? And we begin by what the Buddha described as wise understanding. Many times I've described, for me, the metaphor that really works well is sensing that this life is an ocean, that my being is an ocean, just awareness, vast, boundless, and that in this ocean are waves. And they're also part of our being, but they don't define us. Waves of thoughts and waves of feelings, waves of grief and excitement and longing. So desire are waves of the ocean, and they're made of ocean. 
And like any other part of the ocean, if we bring wise attention to desire, what we discover, what's revealed, is the very essence, is the ocean itself. So what is asked of in awakening through desire is not to push it away and not to get lost in it, but to bring a profound quality of attention. And this really takes commitment because, as I said, it's really unconscious. We don't see a lot of how we're driven. What lets us make the commitment is when we get it that it's not just something that we're trying to, you know, kind of relax around or subdue, but that actually it's the pathway to freedom. Mel Rapa, Tibetan hero, sings to the demons, to the cravings that appear in his cave. It is wonderful you came today. You should come again tomorrow from time to time. We should converse. And then at some points he offers his head to the demons. It's that same sentiment. It's like desires teach us everything. One Zen nun was asked what her practice was. She said, I meet my life with my whole body. It's opening fully to what's here. Now there's times, each of you can think of where you get snagged in this world of desire, of wanting, where you get fixated, that it feels really, really difficult to do that. That we either feel like we're going to be overcome and just be completely lost in addiction, or else we feel really ashamed. And at those times, for me, the, what really most helps is this prayer, may this serve to awaken. When craving or longing gets fierce and difficult to deal with, may this serve to awaken. So in the Buddhist teachings, when these waves arise, our practice is to bring presence, to not cut them off, not push them away, not be drowned in them, but to bring presence to them. We're taught that when the wanting is strong, to name it. Okay, wanting, wanting. Or as one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, does it, he says, wanting mind, wanting. So there's less identification. Just wanting is going on. When it gets like we feel like we're going to get lost in it, in craving, to uh, shift our focus a little, to remember impermanence, to remember that everybody's wanting, to remembering that these bodies die, to see the big picture. At other times when we feel dissociated from wanting mind, in the sense of not really connected with what's happening, to come into our bodies fully. Some of you know the Tibetan practice of Tonglen. The essence of Tonglen, which is beautiful in working with wanting, is to feel the wave fully and remember the ocean both. Can you breathe in and feel this surge of wanting something and breathe out and sense it happening in this very big awareness. It's these two qualities of mindfulness, the space it's happening in and connection in our body that allows us to wake up. Now for me, my most uh, probably dramatic windows into wanting mine have been when I've been at long retreats and there's no distraction I can't get what I want, but I'm fixated. And it can happen around food, it can happen around having an interview with a teacher that I really want to impress. You know, the mind fixates on wanting and you just sit there for, those of you that have been to retreats, you can sit there for hours and hours and have your mind just keep spinning around the same thing. How do we work with that? I remember once, and I've shared this here before, I think it was the second long retreat I went to. It was a six-week retreat. 
I had just gotten involved in a new relationship and I was completely infatuated and um, my intention of going to this retreat was to kind of come into real peace and balance within myself and instead I sat there on retreat and all I was doing was fantasizing. I was completely obsessed. And along with all the fantasy was this judgment, like, what kind of spiritual person am I? I'm just sitting here, you know, having sexual fantasies, you know, and everybody else is, you know, going into high states of rapture and bliss and so on, which is never true. (laughs) So I did everything I knew how I could do. I mean, I, I redirected my mind to my breath and I did walking meditation and I went outside and I just did everything I could to just kind of cut off all this, you know, mental stuff going on, and um, it didn't work. So finally I went into an interview and and described to my teacher, I think it was Carol Wilson, um, how I was really working hard to to kind of wake up out of all this desiring. And she said, how are you relating to this desire? And I I said, basically I hate it, (laughs) you know. And, and so I started exploring my relationship with wanting and realized how much I had created an adversary out of it and then started exploring what would happen if I said, it's not my fault. It's not my fault, it's just happening. It's like there's a storm going through my mind. It's just happening. Like you wouldn't blame the weather out there for five days of rain. Why was I blaming five days of fantasy? You know, taking it so personally. So I started just with this practice of not making it the enemy. Not thinking there was something wrong with me for being so addicted during those days. And as I did that, that kind of loosened the grip some. And then the practice was simply to come out of the story and into the body again and again and again. And what I found was there was all this craving fixated on a person, but it was really this longing to love and be loved and really be alive. That's what it was about. And the more I had to be alive, the more I felt alive. And I remember at IMS, they, they have a lot of chickadees out back in the woods there, and they are very people-friendly. And if we put your hand out, the chickadee will land there, you know, if you have a little bit of bird seed. And I remember going out and standing there and having a little chickadee in my hand and feeling as much in love with that chickadee as I would be with this guy or with anything in the universe because I was just in love with life. And then, of course, I went home and my mind refixated and I became nuts again. But, you know, <laughs> at least I had a taste. Of <laughs> Rilke writes, and this is in, he lets God speak through him. He says, this is God's voice, You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. When we fixate, we narrow ourselves and become small and tight and tense. When we push away desire, We lose God, we lose that basic divine energy that is expressing through us. So our practice is to let this life live through us. When wanting comes up, whether it's addictive craving or just the idea of I want to um, get somebody's attention, to feel it in our bodies, come out of the story let it live through us. Now sometimes when I'm talking to someone about working wisely with this energy, they'll say, but what if it's really out of control? I mean, what if I'm self-destructing and acting out? And I think it's a really important question because every one of us has at times, at least in our life, had that happen. And for many of us, a lot of times, My mother is an alcoholic. I grew up 
with her actively drinking. She stopped when I was 17, but I was in that world and as an ACOA, know what that's like. Um, I've found myself addicted to food at different phases of my life. I felt like I overdid it on drugs at different times. I still struggle with caffeine as of 2 o'clock this afternoon. I felt (laughs) caught up in that one. You know, there are these part ways that we get hooked and we think we need something and it doesn't feel good and we can feel small and I still find that the most profound transformation or freedom I feel around any addiction is to first recognize when I've started shaming myself for it doesn't matter what it is if I'm addicted in a judgmental angry space or uh, a workaholic kind of addiction usually we've turned on ourselves and there's a layer of shame about it and that locks it in. So the first piece when it feels out of control is to forgive ourselves. It's not my fault. There's nothing wrong with this essential being. And that forgiving is not permission to hurt ourselves. It's a forgiving that lets us feel compassion so we can choose more wisely. After we've forgiven, we need to get help. You know, this practice of presence, when we talk about how do you work with difficult stuff, whether it's craving or aversion, is not necessarily a solitary practice. When the Buddha described sitting down and being with our experience, it didn't necessarily mean alone. When the cravings get very strong, we need the co-presence of others that understand that can help to hold the space of seeing these waves rise and fall. Help us to remember not to act out because that takes us away from our hearts and our bodies. We never find how to be free in relating to what's going on if we act out of it. We often need others. When we begin to get the knack of it, we find that when longing comes up in us, we can notice the story, oh, I want that person or that thing, and come into our bodies and feel longing and have that longing help us arrive in the deepest sense of belonging. Now, one of the poets that is probably the great kind of lover poet of the Sufi tradition, Hafiz. In his life story, there's a description of how he worked with longing. And I'd, I loved it so much, I just reread it today. I hadn't seen it for a long time. I, I just thought I'd share it with you. Hafiz lived in the 1300s, Persian poet. When he was 21, he was working at a baker's, as a baker's assistant. He delivered some bread to a mansion and happened to catch a fleeting glimpse of a beautiful girl on the terrace. That one glimpse captured his heart and he fell madly in love with her, though she did not even notice him. He was from a wealthy, noble family and he was a poor baker's assistant. She was beautiful. He was short and physically unattractive. The situation was hopeless. As months went by, Havis made up poems and love songs celebrating her beauty and his longing for her. People heard him singing his poems and began to repeat them. The poems were so touching they became popular all over the area. Havis was oblivious of his new fame as a poet. He thought only of his beloved. Desperate to win her, he undertook an arduous spiritual discipline that required him to keep a vigil at the tomb of a certain saint all night long for 40 nights. It is said that anyone who could accomplish this near impossible austerity would be granted his heart's desire. Every day Avis went to work at the bakery. Every night he went to the saint's tomb and willed himself to stay awake for love of this girl. His love was so strong that he succeeded in completing the vigil. At daybreak on the 40th day, the archangel Gabriel appeared before Havis and told him to ask for whatever he wished. Havis had never seen such a glorious, radiant being as Gabriel. He found himself thinking, hmm, if God's messenger is so beautiful, how much more beautiful must God be? (laughs) 
gazing on the unimaginable splendor of God's angel, Havis forgot all about the girl, his wish, everything. He said, I want God. Gabriel then directed Havis to a spiritual teacher who lived in the area. The angel told Havis to serve this teacher in every way and his wish would be fulfilled. That's part one. So, diving deeper, he felt the longing, he stayed with the longing, and it revealed an even deeper longing. So what happened is he spent many years with his teacher. I think he spent 40 years with his teacher. This is the next part, 40 years later. One day, when Havis was well over 60, he confronted his aged teacher and said, Look at me, I'm old, my wife and son are long dead. What have I gained by being your obedient disciple for all those years? Atar, his name, gently replied, Be patient and one day you will know. Havis shouted, I knew I would get that answer from you. <laughs> in, a fi- in a fervor of spiritual desperation, he began another vigil. He drew a circle on the ground and sat within it for 40 days and nights without leaving it for food, drink, or even to relieve himself. On the 40th day, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) On the 40th day, the angel again appeared to him and asked him what he desired. Havis discovered that during the 40 days all his desires had disappeared. He replied instantly that his only wish was to serve his teacher. Just before dawn, Avis came out of the circle and went to his teacher's home. Atar was waiting at the door. They embraced warmly, and Atar gave Havis a special cup of aged wine. As they drank together, the intoxicating joy of the wine opened his heart and dissolved every trace of separateness. With a great laugh of delight, Havis was forever drowned in love and united with God, his divine beloved. So this begins as a story of human love and he lets it live through him and it reveals a less fixated version, I want God, and then of love with his teacher. And then of course he got restless because his longing for the beloved was still there and it was stronger and stronger. So then he devoted all of his energies to love. Now the word devote means to give wholly of ourselves. So to feel the love fully, this is not a story, not any idea, but just to feel it. He was willing to perfect his love until nothing else existed. And then the force of love consumed his personality, even his desire for love. And he discovered, and this is the imagery of the wine, that all one can do is serve as a vessel of love. He emerged from the circle and then approached and embraced every experience of his life with the unlimited wisdom of love. He wrote one of, this, one of these poems saying, All I know is love and I find my heart infinite and everywhere. Now one thing I notice when we start encountering this possibility. The Tibetans have their way of expressing it. In the tantric tradition, they describe desire like this. They say we're learning to mount these high-spirited, steed-like messengers in full consciousness so that they may carry us rapidly to a continuous presence to the world. One thing I notice is that we can start hearing this and think, yeah, but my life's kind of dull and I don't feel that passion and I don't feel that longing. And yeah, I get fixated, but not with that kind of aliveness and devotion. And we almost have a nostalgia or disappointment about passion. Most everyone I know has had jolts in their life of of that intense aliveness, not just passion for a person, but often passion for a person, where there's just this incredible awake, alive, like I could give my life for this over and over again feeling. And there's spontaneity and work and everything becomes really intense. But what we find in our lives over the years is that the culture overrides that and we get habitual 
and we disconnect from our body where passion lives and we set our sights lower and we forget and it's kind of this distant idea of feeling kind of what Havis describes as this, this enormous willingness to devote himself to love. So, so much of our practice is this willingness to look again and to begin to reopen to our body and to pleasure, to feel the breath in this moment to drop under the stories and see if you do right this moment what happens if you just drop any ideas and just allow yourself to feel the movement of the breath. These bodies are absolutely alive and vibrating and creative and intense and we can't learn love unless it's through the body we have to be in our bodies we can't be creative if we're not in our bodies there's different practices because we get so habituated to being out of our bodies to being in our stories there's different practices of coming into these bodies through the day to feel our skin and to feel the air on our skin and to walk and really do walking meditation feeling our foot touch the earth to be in the shower and not be thinking it's an amazing thing to just feel ourselves flooded by warm water it's so sensational we need to re-enter our senses we live through our senses to be able to move through the day with the wonder of a child like really awake to what's happening so there's one particular practice that interested me I was reading in a book on it's called Desire, the Tantric Path to Awakening in the Tantric Sadhana which is spiritual practice there's a particular practice where the yogi sees the world as desire everything, a leaf falling from a tree the sky, the snow, the water he drinks, his food desires him think of that in this way he enters into an extremely subtle and refined relationship with objects we do not touch in the same way a teacup that desires us describes in a really beautiful way and you can imagine this and and experiment with it drinking a glass of water and imagining that the water desires you that as you swallow the water and it goes into your body that the water desires every cell of your being now you might think of it as a kind of gamey thing or who's the self that the water's desiring but when you actually experiment with it it dissolves self it just opens into this fluid world where life is living and exchanging and breathing and tasting and touching so I'll end with another poem from Havis you will, we'll end with a little meditation too so you might want to sit up and just close your eyes and be comfortable when we get small when our desire gets fixated or when we're just disconnected from even our longing our practice is to remember what matters just to ask yourself what do I really care about and then to bring our attention to our body and heart this is the way we re-enter the world we awaken our heart Havis writes 
Why all this talk of the beloved, music and dancing, and liquid ruby light we can lift in a cup? Why all this talk? Because it is low tide, a very low tide in this age and around most hearts. We are exquisite coral reefs, dying when exposed to strange elements. God is the wine ocean we crave, we miss, flowing in and out of our pores. Why all this talk of the beloved, music and dancing, and liquid ruby light we can lift in a, to- in a cup? We are exquisite coral reefs. God is the wine ocean we crave, we miss, flowing in and out of our pores. So let's chant to close, if you will. Chant the sound current of Om. Please inhale. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.